The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Peter Rayner and do not necessarily represent the opinions of the New York Film Academy's staff, faculty, or students. Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. Today we actually have someone else in the studio with me, noted film critic Peter Rayner. He is the critic for the Christian Science Monitor. He's also written for The New Yorker, for LA Times, and a lot of other publications. He's a finalist for the Pulitzer, and also a teacher and fellow faculty member at New York Film Academy. Uh, he's a native New Yorker, and he's the writer of Rainer on Film, 30 Years of Film Writing in a Turbulent and Transformative Era. Uh, this covers decades of his writing career. It's a book that's actually available on Amazon, uh, and it's a terrific book. So, Peter, first of all, thank you so much for coming and joining us today in the studio. Thanks, Eric. So, I figure we might as well begin with the beginning. Um, how you started with uh, your love of cinema. If there's movies when you were a kid that just immediately made you think, like, this is a career I want. Right. Yeah, I, I grew up primarily in Westchester County, which is certainly close enough to New York City that mm -hmm. I was able to go in all the time and see movies in the many revival houses that no longer exist in New York. Mm -hmm. But primarily, I saw movies on television growing up, which was an interesting way to get a film education. Sure. You, you know, you didn't get to see a lot of the so-called classics, at least not the non-English ones. There was a show called Million Dollar Movie, right. which showed the same movie every night for five nights running. And so in that way, I kind of obsessively would rewatch all of these movies and unknowingly learned about acting and script and, and camera and all of this stuff just by seeing these films over and over again. Right, it gives you more of a critical eye. Yeah, you, you're sort you of a critic. a bit of an expert. Right. There were a ton of newspapers in New York back then, something like 12 daily newspapers, mm -hmm. and they all had critics, You know, many of whom were quite good. And so that sort of gave me the idea that, gee, I'm watching all these movies mm -hmm. and I'm sort of thinking about them in ways that aren't just as a fan – the big thing was when my dad gave me a copy of Agee on film. Uh, James Agee was a great writer uh, who, for a period of about seven years, was a film critic. So I read this and I said, wow, this really demonstrates that you can write about movies and be a real writer. It's not just, you know, the acting was good, this was right, bad, right, right. you know, a checklist and, you know, plot summary. And Pauline Kael had come out with, with her first book called I Lost It at the Movies. And that was exciting in a different way because she was just coming onto the scene and writing about movies that were mostly current. So I would say between the two of them, that sort of got me thinking that maybe this is something that I sort of had an affinity for. And you went to, was it Brandeis? Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was at Northwestern for a year and I transferred to Brandeis. I was there from 70 to 73. I was for a time the editor of my college paper, which was really an excuse for me to control the length of my film reviews. So I was the film critic. For the <laughs> it was just a power grab, so you could well, you could, it, yeah, you could get as many okay, columns. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I admit, no, I mean, you know, it's the only time in my life I've ever had the opportunity to be my own boss oh, in journalism, yeah, right. you know. And it was very fortunate because that was a time, we're talking, you know, 70 to 73, right. when movies were incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not being some old fogey, particularly American movies just broke through and week after week, I'd be reviewing, you know, The Godfather. Yeah, Godfather came out in that time. So. Yeah, The Godfather, Sounder, uh, you know, Mean Streets, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Sour on the Pity. I mean, just you name it. Last Picture Show, they were all coming out week after week. And a Cabaret. I mean, the thing is about that time frame and really to come of age as a critic in the 70s meant you were there for really the modern golden age of Hollywood. Right. It's kind of like where TV is now is where film was right. then. 
I mean, that yeah. is such, I mean, to be able to go into a theater. I mean, I got to see Godfather years later. Yeah. But my introduction to Godfather was a VHS copy yeah. on a not very big TV. But uh, to be able to see those movies on the big screen for the first yeah. viewing, too, i yeah. more than a little envious. Yeah, no, it makes a big difference even now, of course. But I think that's really what set me on the road because not only were all these great movies coming out, but I'm writing about them for a very literally captive audience, my fellow sure. students and, and teachers. And I think that's why so many critics of my generation are critics because we all pass through the same ether. And by the time you finish college, I can't imagine how many reviews you've written, especially if you were the editor as well. Like, it's like you get to enter the professional world sort of tested, (laughs) you know, like you're not- In a way, yeah. I mean, what I did was, you know, when I graduated, I said, all right, well, now what am I gonna do with my life? So I gathered my best reviews together from college and I went to the library and I wrote out a list of about 100 publications and I got, I think, two responses. Two out of, I'm sorry, two out of like 100, you said? Yeah, yeah. One was uh, from Mademoiselle Magazine. Long story short, Mademoiselle gave me a, a shot at their monthly film review column. Uh, first film I ever reviewed professionally was Chinatown. Wow. And it's been all downhill ever since. I was to say, you're starting yeah. with a rarefied air right off the yeah, bat. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty amazing. So, so now I was in the, in the bloodstream, and it was very, very exciting. And then the Herald Examiner, which is one of the two daily newspapers, opened up. And this was a chance to be, you know, the critic for major metropolitan daily. It was what I sure. always wanted. So that's what I did. And I was with the Herald Examiner for 10 years, from 79 till the day it folded in mm-hmm. 1989. So then you had to find a new home? Yeah. Well, the <laughs> LA Times knew before we did at the Herald that the paper was going to fold. So within an hour of the announcement, there was an editor who used to work at the Herald who was on the phone trying to bring me over. So that was all very nice. Was it like for you as a critic then? I'm sure you travel in these circles. I'm right. sure right. you've made friends with them over the years. But then part of your job is to give an honest assessment of your right. friend right. and their work, which might not always be perfect. First of all, you know, when you're the film critic for a newspaper in L.A., it's kind of like being the car critic for a newspaper in Detroit. Right. You know, I'm a human being. So if I see films by a a particular writer or director or an actor that I really respond to, and then you have occasion to be in a social situation with them, you know, it's very hard to just sort of wall yourself off and not say anything. The downside is that you do often get played even by people who, who you respect. If you stop giving good reviews to them, then uh, often you find out who your real friends are, if, right. if they're friends. But, you know, it's it's tough. I've had, you know, people say, have you ever been dissed by a, an actor or something? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, especially with Twitter now, where you read a review by Peter Rayner and you disagree, you can go and all of a sudden, with a few touches oh, of yeah. your, your fingers, suddenly your three, four million followers find out directly what your thought is of the review by Peter Rayner. Yeah, I mean, I'm not crazy about all that, but, you know, there's something you can do about it. But it comes with the territory. And usually people only write when they're angry about something. Or they'll retweet something and they'll say you're wrong. Although I Uh, I definitely know some people who, when they get a great review, they feel the need to share that with the world as well. So Well, good. I wish I I got more of that. The the humble brag, you know. Right, right, right. It's funny, too, because being an artist, being a filmmaker, actor, means you're perpetually getting reviewed. Yet, obviously, some artists are incredibly thin-skinned, despite the fact it's 
it's it's like part of your job. Yeah, no, I mean I understand it, but if you if you think too much about how you know you're going to be upsetting all these people, then you might as well be you know right. a carpenter. Um, you know, <laughs> Although then I mean, you have to deal with people complaining yeah, about your carpentry. Too, right? yeah. well, and and mind you, I haven't read every review you've ever written, but they don't come off as nasty even when you clearly don't like a project. Yeah. Well, I try not to be gratuitously nasty because yeah. I don't see the point of that. You know, people have this idea that all critics are like Addison DeWitt, George Sanders, and All About yeah, Eve. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. sharpening their knives and they're only in it for the kill. And admittedly, if you really don't like something or you're really offended by something, you can get your rocks off by really flaying something in print. Right. But... That gets old awfully fast, and in the long run, it's the films that that are really great that challenge you as a critic. Like when I came out of Blue Velvet, which I loved, but it's a very confounding movie. Right. And, it's it's and, not simple to review something no, like that. No, no. You say, well, how, how on earth am I going to do justice to this experience? Right. And, you know, in my book, there's a section on masterpieces, and, and to me, the... The mark of a critic is how good are they at really praising something? Because mm -hmm. there are some critics who are really good at being nasty, but when they're praising something, it's like, you know, the cinematography was gorgeous and the acting was terrific. And, you know, it kind of doesn't really sing. The thing is you have to try to back up your negativity, which is not always easy if you sure. don't have the space to do it. You know, I'm talking in theoretical terms, but a lot of us, you know, space is, is not what it used to be and you can't stretch out and really do justice sometimes to the full extent of, of how you want to support or tear down something. But, you know, there are all kinds of stories of, you know, John Simon, who's who's still writing. Uh, he has a blog at this point. He's notorious for writing really defamatory personal attacks on how actors looked and everything like that. Right, right. And he was at a function years ago, and the actress goes over to the hors d'oeuvre table and picks up this big tray of food and goes over and dumps it on him you know, he says i'm going to send you the cleaning bill um but she got presents and kisses from all the broadway and hollywood contingent sure. for years afterwards she had the chutzpah to do what they all wanted to do i but guess just, so uh, yeah well you were bringing up kind of this idea of space for years these critics these writers they had the room even roger ebert weirdly enough siskel and ebert sort of I think maybe tilted reviews towards where it is now in that, you know, Roger Ebert's written reviews yeah. of movies were fabulous. I mean, I think right. he won a Pulitzer. He did, yeah. Um, then they had a TV show called At the Movies, where it was right. Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, two critics from the Chicago scene. And they then turned cinema critiquing into something that was a little bit like a greatest hits collection. Suddenly it was a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If you think about it with Jaws, which had three marvelous characters hunting the shark, Jurassic Park only has Goldblum, the rest of the crew stands around and smiles or schemes. Still, thumbs up for me, the action scenes are really enjoyable. I gave a thumbs up too, and also for the action scenes, and I feel that really this movie, though, is a missed opportunity. Now we have Rotten Tomatoes with a aggregate score, Metacritic. Right, right, right. So I was curious, your right. take on... I guess, where a large chunk of this industry has now gone. When I was first starting out as a critic or reading critics was, some might argue, the golden age of criticism in the sense there were some amazing critics back then. There are many more good critics now than there were in the 70s. It's just that there are fewer places to show that you're good. But when the Siskel-Ebert syndrome kicked in, they were originally a local show and then uh, it became national and then right. Disney bought it, et cetera. That 
created kind of the critic as celebrity. Before that, the critics I'd mentioned earlier were celebrities. Yeah, that's right. Say they they had their own celebrity too. Right, but in a a rarefied circle uh, because they weren't on TV. But Siskel and Ebert, people would tune in to see them who n- never heard of, of uh, Pauline Kael or Stanley Kaufman or anybody. They, they just wanted to see these two guys fight, frankly. Well, oh, no, 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 I no. hated this movie more than any other movie on this show, and I'm, uh-huh. I'm really surprised at you. You should be ashamed of yourself. What, First of all, for the not movie- agreeing with you? I've never well, been ashamed of that. I've been proud of that. Okay, well, in that case, uh, here's another star for your lapel. Okay. This movie is not funny. And then there were knockoffs of Siskel and Ebert. Various other people tried to do it. Look, I knew Roger, and, and I respected him, and, and he was a good guy and a terrific writer. The problem I had with that show was not that it was two guys talking about movies, because if you actually transcribed their words, it's probably more, more words devoted to a given movie than most newspaper critics had mm-hmm. in print. But I just felt that, you know, you have thumbs up and you have thumbs down, but right. most movies are thumbs sideways, Sure, right? I mean, you don't usually love or hate most movies. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. And there are elements you love, elements that don't work as well. So I understood why they didn't have thumbs sideways, but I thought it (laughs) sort of adulterated the the whole concept by pitching it yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down. And it became, you know, literally a trademark. Roger copyrighted the thumb. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, so when people started to see that, hey, you know, you can get on TV and talk about criticism... So suddenly, you know, you would find in the, in the film schools and just in general, I remember talking to this, this film class of people who wanted to be uh, critics, a criticism class, and I said, this is an awfully photogenic class, <laughs> you know, and I said, well, <laughs> well, I know why that is. <laughs> right, because you know, they, they don't they think of the hunched right, over the keyboard really, writing. Like, yeah, they, they say, the, I want to be a critic, and I say, right. well, uh, what have you written? He says, well, I, I haven't, I like to talk about film, I like to... <laughs> I said, well, that's not quite it, you know, because everyone says, what a great job. All you do is go to movies all day. And I said, well, yes and no. First of all, most movies are lousy, and I see about 250 a year. And second of all, that's half the job. You know, the real job for me is to be a writer. Right. You know, a critic is first and foremost, or should be, uh, a writer. And that's really what the job is about for me. But the space that we have to do it in, you know, you mentioned is um, there are still a number of outlets where you can stretch out. But to really stretch out is a luxury that is not only rarer than it used to be, but in some ways not expected. Now, like what you were saying, the people just sort of want to look for the quick fix. Right, right, right. You know, is it, is it fresh or rotten? Is it this or that? Now, at the monitor, I am asked to provide a grade. At least it saves me the trouble of having, you know, Rotten Tomatoes people call me up as they used to and, and say, you know, is this <laughs> is, a B or you know, a it, B minus? But, you know, as far as those sites go, I don't, unlike a lot of critics, I don't really have a problem with Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. but I think it cuts both ways. On the one hand, you know, none of the critics whose stuff is being linked on Rotten Tomatoes gets paid for that. However, but you're not getting any kind of bump for uh, being featured. Not really. Even, uh, uh, even features the top critic. Not that I I, imagine. You're right. Not that I know of. Also, it's too easy for editors and you know publishers to say, "Well, we don't need critics. We can just link to Rotten Tomatoes." <laughs> right. You know, if everybody thought that way, there'd be nothing to link to because everything that you're aggregating would be gone. The people who are aggregating Rotten Tomatoes are people who have, you know, individual bylines. Mm-hmm. But what I like about Rotten Tomatoes is that, you know, in, in the past, if I wanted to read a critic, say, in Boston or someplace, the only way I could read that critic is if I subscribed to, you know, the Boston Globe or the Phoenix or, or whatever. Right. Now, with the click of a key, you can read anybody. So, in a sense, it's the great leveler. You know, the New York Times and, and the Podunk Express critic are equally accessible. 
which is a good thing. It also means that if you're good, but out there in the wilderness, you don't feel quite as alone. Mm -hmm. Right. No, it's true. Your review can reach so much more of a mass audience than ever. It's yeah, not and only I think limited to that town. That's important. I myself don't read a whole lot of criticism, you know, hardly any before I see a film, assuming reviews are even right. out. And yeah, but so you also have the luxury of you get to see it early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the trades and some publications usually come out earlier than the rest of us. But, but for the most part, particularly if I'm at a festival like Toronto, I'm seeing films that are opening two, three months in advance, sometimes right. a year in advance, sometimes they never open. And, you know, I don't review a movie right after I see it most of the time, unless I'm on some big deadline. And it's, mm -hmm. But I try to take notes just so I have some sense of, you know, what I was thinking so that when I do review it, if it's months later, you know, because I, I do see a lot of movies. I do have the luxury at the monitor of not reviewing everything I see, thank God, because that's you, another... You can pick and choose, basically? To, to, for the most part. I mean, if, if, if I didn't want to review Black Panther for some reason, I would have had to review that just for obvious reasons. But I did want to see it, of course. Or let, let's say Transformers movies, I have sort of at this point saying, you know, I, I just can't take it anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, right. Like you can, as a critic, then say, I, I think, I think some, my audience is good not to read my review. To some extent. I, I mean, the reason I have to do some of that is because at least the online version of, of what I write does reach everybody, not just monitor subscribers, particularly mm -hmm. if you're going through Rotten Tomatoes and, and hits matter, clicks matter, all of that stuff. Sure. So I can't just turn my back because, I mean, I wasn't kidding. There are 20 movies that open in a given week. Sure. And the radio show that I'm a part of, Film Week, they sort of like it if the two of us critics see the majority of what's out there as a great public service <laughs> to all these people who are listening who then don't have to see all this crap I that we're talking about. I see Transformers, so you do not. Well, if Transformers <laughs> opened on a week when I was on the show, I would have to see the thing. Uh, but that's a classic example of a so-called critic-proof movie. Yeah. This idea that the studios are clamoring for critics to write about their movies is certainly not true. And there are some movies that criticism has zero effect. It's not like, you know, I'm going to give a terrible review to Transformers 12 and Michael Bay is going to sit there and go, God, now he just lost $12 million at the box office. <laughs> you know, the only critic who apparently had even the slightest real effect on studio picture box office was Ebert. Where you have an effect as a critic is with the small indie films. Sure. That's the big difference. Studio pictures, increasingly, you know, they'll screen it maybe three, four days before it opens at best. Sometimes they don't screen it at all. If you're known for not rolling over, like me, sometimes you get to see it last. And then there are critics, you know, blurb whores who, who see things real well, early. Well, back in the day, Earl Dittman, his stuff was like, you know, you would have a movie that clearly critics did not favor. Right. And then all of a sudden it would say, like, the greatest epic yet, you know, Earl yeah. Dittman. Was it like Wireless Magazine? Something, something like that, yeah. Something that doesn't even exist. And right. Yeah, I mean, there were so many critics out there that, in essence, they're they're not reviews; they're just glorified right. fluff pieces right. to just get their line on the commercial. Right. Well, back in the day, you had some critics who were like that; they could always be counted on to give a great yeah. review. Very rarely do I get quoted at this point, but for whatever reason, they tend to go to the same people all the time. And you know, if you use the word Oscar, like it's only January, but this film's going to clean up at Oscar right. time. Or, you know, Driving Miss Daisy. Drive this film straight to the Oscars. <laughs> straight to the Oscars. You know? <laughs> right. You know, and, and it's just shameless. A yeah. lot. You know, and sometimes, I mean, there are certain critics who are quoted a lot who, if you actually go back and look at the full review, they're kind of mixed reviews. But these, yeah, yeah. these quote lines stand out in Dayglow 
You know, it's just, <laughs> I didn't think, for some reason, I used to always get quoted on John Carpenter movies, even though I was very mixed on them. <laughs> you know, like, like like The Fog, you know, not a very good movie, but, but a couple of really scary moments. Yeah. Really scary! <laughs> you know, I very rarely use exclamation points, but they always put them into these quotes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, rarely, they'll call me up and say, we want to use this quote, which isn't quite what I wrote, or it's the, he- <laughs> or it's the headline, which I never write for these reviews, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. Look, I like getting quoted, you know, sure. my, my mom loved it, and it makes you feel good. But if it's in the service of something that you genuinely liked. Mm-hmm. But as I was saying, you know, critics do make a difference for foreign films, independent films, documentaries, right. those movies, because they don't have any money to promote their films. Right, right, right. You are their advertising, basically. Right, we are their advertising, and they will build a, a screening room in your home to show you their movie. Sure. I'm not big on streaming, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff now that's streamed or DVDs, you know, whatever it takes. And with the traffic in L.A., I have to say, if the choice is me driving an hour and 45 minutes to see a movie that's an hour and a half Mm -hmm. or seeing it in the comfort of my own home on a film that isn't going to lose much visually... That's what we do now. Yeah. On that end, I was going to actually ask you about, I was wondering if there were smaller films, independent films, you felt like over the course of your career, you're really able to help champion. Right. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I I guess I have two success stories, if I may say. One was the movie Blue Sky. Jessica Lange, Tony Richardson directed it, Tommy Tommy Lee Lee Jones. Jones. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was made and wasn't released for like a year and a half. Then it came out. It got a an okay review by the first ring critic at the LA Times, and I was at the Times at that point as well. And I thought, well, Jessica Lang's performance is just yeah, she's unbelievably great. You know, I showed it at a NIFA class to uh, acting students. Oh, that's right. I think I saw the poster, but I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to pick that's something. A, that's that, a bit of a gem. Yeah, yeah, and I write about it in my book too. But the piece in the book is taken from the LA Times. So what happened was. I wrote this big essay about her performance, mm-hmm. and the paper played it up front page calendar. And that was just when the Academy was starting to send out VHS tapes mm-hmm. of films. So Orion got behind the film to the extent that they sent out VHS tapes with a copy of my review to all the Academy members oh, of this so film that no one had seen. And then she won the Oscar. And she, I'm told, you know, has credited me for making that happen, at least getting the film out there. Mm-hmm. It would have died. Another example was Alfonso Cuaron's first English language movie, Little Princess, was a Warner's picture. Yeah. That was a movie that, again, it got an okay review in the Times, but I thought this was just a transcendent yeah, family. Beautiful a, film. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful film. So I wrote a long piece on it, particularly because at the time everybody was saying, well, why aren't there enough good movies for families? You know, I said, well, here's one and you're not going to see it. The Warner's campaign for it initially was terrible. So again, they took out big ads. My review was sent out. They re-released it on the basis of the review. It still didn't do the kind of business it should have. And mm-hmm. the ad campaign had the little girl glowing cheeks in the right, dark. Right, like, like, I mean, it uh, looked yeah. like a Stephen King movie. Um, <laughs> but I know that Quaron said, you know, I, I really owe you. So, I mean, that, that makes you feel good because you're really sure. championing. You know, I think I speak for a lot of critics that, you know, it's not tearing things down that we get off on. It's championing films that might not normally have a life of its own. Sure. Well, and actually gets us into a part of your book I really was excited mm. to talk with you about, which was overrated or underseen. And we'll, right. we'll start with the underseen, and yeah. we'll, we'll we'll start positive right. before, before we we work <laughs> our way maybe to the back of the house. There, um, a few of them that I, I just jotted down that I thought really uh, deserved some mention. That I'm really glad you did in the book. Yeah. Wild Bill with a terrific yeah. performance by Jeff Bridges. Yeah. 
Joe Gould's secret, and I'm going to piggyback right. on that, and I want to talk about Big right. Night, which I love right. also Stanley Tucci directed. And right. then Babe, Pig in the City. Yeah. Any of those you want to pontificate on? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Um, Wild Bill, I was the critic at Los Angeles Magazine at that time, and I had mm-hmm. a lot of space, and I thought... You know, Walter Hills had a very uneven career, but yeah. at his best, he's a great director. And at that time, he was sort of not as highly regarded. And Jeff Bridges, I've always thought, was one of the very best actors around. Yeah. You know, and here here he is in a, in a full-scale starring role. Terrific script. I just thought it was... Ellen Barkin was Ellen Barkin. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing movie that, you know, you and I and eight other people have probably seen. Yeah. But it was a classic example of my trying to put into the spotlight a film that was terrific and I knew needed some help. Uh, Babe Pig in the City is is one of the best sequels ever yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love Babe. I think this is even better. It's a, a turbocharged, whoop-de-doo, great. The script is really good. I mean, mm-hmm. everything about it is just a terrific movie. And, and it, uh, I, I think it like didn't hit with family audiences the same way because they're Dark. There's a darkness about it, yeah. but it, it actually—I mean—the themes of it are beautiful, and, yeah. it, and it died like it, it, I like, know. And Babe was such a hit and such a hit on video too. I think some people who loved Babe were felt betrayed that this wasn't, <laughs> you know, the same tone. No, but right. it, I mean, if it had been, it wouldn't have been as good. It it was uh, it was just a terrific movie. But you really yeah. could feel like the first one. You're like George Miller worked on that, and then Babe Pig in the City. Like <laughs> yeah. ah, yeah, there's George Miller. Right, that's the Road Warrior George right. Miller. <laughs> like there's a scene that looks like it's right out of Thunderdome towards the end yeah, of that film. Yeah, I mean, some great chase scenes in it. And then uh, Joe Gould's Secret, which yeah. uh, directed by Stanley Tucci, right? Uh, inspired by a true story. Yeah, it was a New Yorker writer who sort of befriended this this homeless guy who claimed to be writing a million-page history of the world. <laughs> it was just a very touching movie. It was very well done. You know, it wasn't a great work of cinematic art, but, it, you know, it didn't have to be. Uh, and that's what I feel about Big Night. I, I'm curious your thoughts on Big Night, because that's, that's yeah, one of those... don't see it when you're hungry. Yeah, that film's all about food. But, but food, not just it's food, but food is a symbol of of art versus commerce and two brothers primo and segundo yeah, yeah. Uh, stanley tucci co-wrote it co-directed it right. starred in it Campbell with tony Scott shalhoub and tony shalhoub yeah. yeah and it's this beautiful little gem of a film i you know i teach writing and yeah. i use that film every time i have a new group if i'm talking dialogue i go there right. if i'm talking theme i go there yeah and stanley tucci he's only directed a little bit but i feel like he really has a real auteur's eye yeah. and, and an auteur's heart you know, Big Night, as I recall, it ends with the two guys. They oh, sort of make up, but they yeah. don't say anything, right? It's, they a, just it's sort a 10 of minute scene of them cooking an omelet. Cooking, and they don't say anything, right? Sometimes the best dialogue is, is no, no dialogue. Di- oh, yep. And that's, that's, you know? one, that's, and that's a, a lesson a, I that's teach. That's a classic <laughs> example. You know, so just, just uh. let it play out. You don't need to say anything. It, no, no dialogue, no cuts. Yeah. Uh, so, well, we talked positive and, you know, <laughs> without being nasty. Uh oh. Some interesting choices for uh, movies that you felt were overrated. Again, not necessarily terrible, mm-hmm. but just overrated. And uh, I'll just list a few. Feel free to riff on any of them. American Beauty, Goodwill Hunting, which I do want to talk about, okay. Shine, Fight Club, Zero Dark Thirty. And then you, you didn't get into this in the book, but you alluded to Silver Linings Playbook, 
which right. I think you just called, and I'm quoting you, a crock. I mean, Civil Lines Playbook <laughs> is entertaining. I call it a crock because I think the way it wraps up, it's like, you know, mental illness is something that you can literally It's easy as long as you dance away. Right, right. If you do well in the dance contest, yeah, you're, I mean, you're healed. I mean, really. But yeah, I was wondering if any of those, particular for you, were like American Beauty wins the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah, like... that pissed me off. <laughs> uh, so, I, for, I forget what should have won that year, but that's actually the first review in my book. I just thought I really wanted, you know, to come out swinging. Yeah. You know, with a film that, that won all these awards. But I, I have found that a lot of people who've read it say, you know, yeah, I kind of agree with you. That was overrated. Sometimes these movies, it takes a while before people really come down from the, uh, the hype yeah. and see these films more for what they really are. You know, Shine, I thought, and we can talk about this in connection with Goodwill Hunting also, sure. but, you know, there's this kind of romance of madness, the right, genius right, right, of right. romance that is, is very much old school Hollywood, but tricked up in these new ways, people buy it mm -hmm. in a way that they might not if it was so nakedly obvious in the old movies, you know, some great composer tearing his hair out and I've got it, you know, right. and, and aha. You know, there are ways to do that story that are sympathetic and powerful and empathetic without distorting who these guys really are. Mm -hmm. Are there films you could think of that are like the troubled genius, you know, I mean, even... Beautiful Mind, which I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I wasn't crazy about that either. And, and that uh, one I know got some criticism yeah, yeah. for leaving out pretty large chunks of who this guy was. Right, you know, all the stuff that's going to turn people off. Yeah, you know. but uh, is there one that you feel like really nailed it? It's very difficult. You know, the, the, the Picasso movie with Anthony Hopkins didn't work. I guess Amadeus, maybe to an extent. I, it's a, yeah, it's I mean, not the I, same category though, right? No, and I, I had a problem with Amadeus too, I'm sorry. <laughs> Because the game plan there was that the real Mozart was this amazing genius, but he was this scatological twit right. in real life, you know, with all this cackling and yeah, all of that. Yeah, That's yeah. what people remember, you know. And then somehow out of all of this comes this great music. Now, if you read anything about his life or in general, this notion that he was somehow visited by the gods I think is a disservice to what genius entails, which isn't all just, you know, you wake up and you're a genius. Mm -hmm. Even geniuses have to work at it sure. and have ups and downs, and there's more of a psychology to their lives than is allowed for in these stupid movies. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe Pollock, I thought, might be one Pollock that, was, yeah, Pollock was, was pretty good. strong. I'd, I'd have to think about that. You know, I mean, Jeffrey Rush, who was in Shine, was played Einstein in, in the TV series. Oh, right, you right. Know, he wasn't bad, but... I mean, that's sort of an impossible role to do. It's very hard to portray uh, genius. Well, and credibly. I think it right, and I think Pollock is such a grounded film. You know, in essence, like he was so driven, right. and he would sort of put his work before all his relationships. Right. Yeah. No. I. It's. It's funny though, because like the ones that I think have been sort of successful that I can recall are mostly about painters. With writers, it's a little more difficult. You know, so you're sitting down, and all of a sudden, you come. It's not a very <laughs> Photo, you know, cinematic yeah, thing to do. A movie you brought up in your book, and, and this one's not based on a true story, but um, Wonder Boys, which is, yeah. I think, a terrific movie yeah. about writing. Underrated, yeah. Yeah, that right. That was that on your and underrated that, no, that's list. That's in another. That's in the Curtis Hanson oh, right, auteur right, section. Right. Yeah. The auteur <laughs> section. I thought Wonder Boys. If you haven't seen it, it's Michael Douglas, and it's I think Paul Newman was so wonderful at. It's like it didn't feel like acting. Yeah. And you realize how much work goes into yeah. making something look like you're not doing any work. Yeah, it, it's really, I, I know for a fact it's one of his very best performances. Yeah, it does capture the writing life in, in ways that most movies don't. Right. Yeah, he doesn't have writer's block. He, he writes too much, which is, right, that like, one detail feels so lived in where 
it has no center because yeah. he has no center. Yeah. Gosh, I want to watch it like tonight. <laughs> you yeah. Know, again. It's a terrific, terrific movie. And who was it like Dee Dee Allen edited it? I'm, I'm trying to remember. It was. Can't oh, believe Ann it. Coates. Yeah, it was one. It was either Dee Dee. I think it was Dee Dee Allen. Allen. Yeah. But yeah, the idea that Dee Dee Allen and Ann Coates were still doing it, <laughs> you know, was yeah. and doing on such a great. I mean, Out of Sight, I think, is one of terrific the, movie. One of the best. I mean, sort of out of sight, genre films. Out of sight won the National Society of Film Critics right, right, right. Uh, Award for Best Picture. And I remember, you know, because usually these awards are given to sort of Oscar bait or prestigious movies that fit all the categories, of, you know. And here was this terrific genre movie. And I was overjoyed that it won. But I got more calls because I, I was, you know, president of the group. Like the New York Times saying, how is it that this film won? In other words, there was some conspiracy or, or what <laughs> What went on? And I explained to them what happened, and then they they published their own version of it anyway. You know, they mm. they, they refused to believe that that you could actually. What was that? Babe, night? the first Babe won Best Picture, also from that. Oh group. yeah. And I remember uh, there was a, p- a picture of a pig on the front page of Variety. <laughs> you know, and people couldn't believe that. I tell you, watch the last ten minutes of that film. You know, Farmer Hoggett and Babe right. and his his big day at the. Uh, at the sheep herding contest, right. it is like the most beautifully directed scene. Yeah, and it is such a. I I love showing that movie to my kids. If anything, I wish they would want to watch it more times because yeah. some of their movies they want to watch a hundred times. I'm like, really? Yeah. What's an example of, of a movie that they want to see hundreds of times? I mean, listen, I love Star Wars, but those prequels, it's it's rough. Really, the prequels? Hey, listen, they're young. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I try with Empire them. Strikes Back is sure, for me a great I, I, movie. I could watch that a hundred yeah, times. I probably I mean, have watched that a hundred right, times. Right. You know, and, and you actually talked a bit about Irvin Kirshner's work on that. And Irvin Kirshner directed Empire. He passed away a couple of years yeah, back, right? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk even a little bit about him. Because yeah. he's, he's kind of like him and I feel like Hal Ashby to an extent. Yeah. There are these like great auteurs who were sort of overshadowed by other auteurs of those time periods. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Ashby directed a string of terrific movies. In the 70s. He was basically 70s. like Babe Ruth up there. Yeah, yeah. I think even Harold and Maude, I think may have even been in the 60s. Or was that like 68 or 69? Right, or but his first film, I think, as a director was, um, wasn't it The Landlord? Uh-huh. Bow Bridges, a terrific script by, uh, I think, Bill Gunn. It was a really, really good movie. But he was a marvelous director. I, I gather he had some you know, personal yeah. and, and drug issues that did him in early. But he's not nearly as recognized as he should be now for those films. Kirshner, even more so. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a director who, uh, you know, he started out, he did a Corman movie. There's a film called The Luck of Ginger Coffee with Robert Shaw and Mary Yore, which is a great newspaper movie. It's, mm-hmm. it's about a newspaper man. And he was like George Lucas's teacher at SC, I think? I or? believe, yeah. He, he went to SC originally himself, and he was incredibly versatile. He did mm-hmm. every, you know, from creepy noir, supernatural, you know, Eyes of Laura Mars mm-hmm. to Empire Strikes Back. Uh, he did a wonderful, very underseen Streisand movie, uh, maybe her best performance, Up the Sandbox. Mm-hmm. Incredibly versatile and good. I'm missing some, you know. Well, but, well one, one to miss, Never Say Never Again. I believe he directed that. Yeah, yeah. Which was the remake of Thunderball with a slightly older Sean Connery. Yeah, right. No, he, there was, you know, he did the sequel to RoboCop. I wasn't crazy about that. Oh, my God, that. that's right. Oh, with that. Just yeah. stop at Empire and call it a day. Cause, right, right. Yeah, and you're talking, I mean, Empire has such... There's so much more to that, you know, it sure. elevated the whole genre, oh, yeah. really. I mean, it's still the best, I think, of them. And it's beautiful. Um, I mean, I've been yeah. able to see it on the big screen. I saw yeah. it when I was a little kid, 
but you see it now, and it, there is such artistry to that. Yeah, well, that, Kirshner had a great graphic sense too. Uh, I mean, the he use really, of color, the use of framing. Yeah. yeah, he worked with Connery much earlier on than that than that Misbegotten Bond movie. Oh, yeah, oh, that's right. Uh, a Fine Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a, yeah. a terrific movie, which is apparently you know recut by the studio, but but Connery is wonderful in it. This is pre James uh-huh. Bond. Even before Dr. No, I believe. Uh-huh. But the word on, on Kirsch, as everybody called him, I, I only met him a few times briefly, but uh, you know, they said one of the reasons he wasn't more well-known or made more movies is that he said nobody can turn a Go project into a development deal you know, <laughs> better than Irvin Kirshner. You know? so, because see, at one point he was going to do a movie of the Ninja, and they were all, yeah, always these projects were announced. Yeah. But a wonderful, wonderful director. I, I, well, and that's the hope, is like you... You know, your book and your reviews, it, it does, you know, as you were saying, it shines a light yeah. on the ones that aren't seen. And, and that's honestly, for myself teaching at a film school, you know, I try to make a point of bringing in stuff that spans decades and trying to find that balance. And it is hard to sometimes get past the, you know, let's call it the little bit of aging on top. But right. there's these beautiful stories that you as a critic have been able to bring to people and vice yeah. versa, which I think is, to me, I imagine, the most rewarding part of your job by far. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in Night of the Hunter, I, I often show that in classes or talk about, because it really is, is such a difficult movie in some ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's comedy, it's scary, it's funny. Right. It's, it's, you know, you really have to sort of be on its wavelength. And Mitchum is so good To, to get it. Mitchum is incredible in it. And, you know, his, his script is by James Agee. Mm-hmm. Only film Charles Lawton ever directed. It was shot by oh, the guy. Oh, that's right, who, right, right, right. The yeah, it was shot by Stanley Cortez, who did Magnificent Ambersons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just an amazing movie on every level. And another director, even more well-known than Kirshner, but still Paul Mazursky is a director oh, sure. who I feel is sort of falling out of the landscape, who did some wonderful, wonderful movies. Yeah, yeah. Real humanist. You know, Harry and Tonto... Enemies, a love story based on the Isaac Singer oh, novel. terrific. Yeah, Lena Olin. Great and, uh, movie. Yeah, Ron, Angelica Houston. Ron Silver. Ron Silver. It, it's an amazing, it's his best work. And his early films, too. You know, Bob Carroll, Ted, and Alice. Yeah. Uh, I saw again not that long oh, ago. Oh, you wrote about that. Yeah, I know. You yeah, love that Yeah, it's like film. a French Yeah, and even Alex in Wonderland, as mm-hmm. misbegotten as a lot of it is, has some classic Hollywood satire. In w- was it. he down and out in Beverly Hills, too? Was yeah, him? down and out in Beverly Hills. Which, which is really good, actually. It's a really funny that, movie. And that one aged nicely. Like, yeah, some of those you were talking about this. I think with American Beauty, like some movies were great then, <laughs> and then yeah. you you watch a little later, and you're like right, eh. right. that one I saw not long back again. It was it really aged Holds up. beautifully. Yeah. Well, listen, I really appreciate just sitting down and chatting with you. I've yeah. seen your screenings that you've hosted at our school, and I think what you do here for our students is look deeper, right? Like yeah. there's so much new stuff, and there's so much great television. But you just have to scratch a little bit and you find things like the Criterion Collection. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, pretty much anything you get in the Criterion Collection, you're going to be happy that you watched it. Right. You might not always get it. You might not always yeah. like it, but you, right. it will expand your film vocabulary and your film knowledge and your film history. All of which, if you're looking to write, direct, produce, act, cinematography, yeah. you got to learn from the giants in order to stand on their shoulders correctly, I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, Peter, thank you so much for thank you, Eric. with me. And, no, it was great. And we will do Went this fast. again. So thank you, Peter, for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. Again, his book, Rainer on Film, is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all other legitimate booksellers. It is more than worth it. If you want to check out some of our other Q&As, you can go to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was edited and mixed by the wonderful Christian Hayden. 
Our creative director is the also wonderful David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Our show is executive produced by Tova Leiter, Sean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler, with the special thanks going out to our staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. See you next time.